Jesus and teach us more about yourself and that we may grow in you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Mephibosheth, hey? What a mouthful. Thank you, Charles. Well done, you. We're introduced to Mephibosheth uh, in this chapter. He's Saul's grandson, King Saul's grandson, and Jonathan's son. Uh, but he doesn't first appear here. He first appears in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're not going to go there, but that's, I'll tell you what happens. Uh, when we meet him there in that chapter, he's only five years old. And news came uh, to Gibeon, where he was living, uh, that his grandfather, King Saul, and his father, uh, Prince Jonathan, had been killed by the Philistines in battle. Uh, and then you can imagine, with Saul dead and Jonathan dead, uh, the royal house is left exposed and unprotected. And so panic ensues. Uh, there's sort of an inevitable sense of destruction uh, what's going to stop the Philistines from just coming and wreaking havoc uh, and taking out the family? And to make matters worse, I mean, you have to think as they are thinking. Uh, David at this time is not king. He's out and about with his uh, mighty men. Um, but they don't necessarily know uh, that David is, isn't going to turn and hurt them. David's uh, protected Saul, God's anointed, and David, we know, has made a covenant with Jonathan in friendship. But not many people know that. And so there's, there's fear from Philistines. There's fear that maybe now David is going to get back at Saul and Saul's family. And Saul tried to kill him six times or more, right? And so there's this sense of panic. And the servants, you can imagine, are running around the palace for their lives. And there's five-year-old Mephibosheth there. And his nurse scoops him up. And as they're running down the steps, she falls. And he goes flying. And his ankles shatter in the fall. Uh, and the, the bones never knit together again well. And so she scoops him back up. Uh, his ankle's broken. And they're running for their lives. Uh, and eventually they, they get with the rest of the household servants to this little village of Lodabar. And so Mephibosheth is safe, uh, but he's deeply wounded. And we read that he's crippled. He's never able to walk well again. And so he grows up lame. Uh, he grows up in obscurity. And imagine this. I mean, his family, his home, uh, his place in the world, but also his sense of future, his sense of where life may have taken him, uh, is all, all, all removed uh, in this moment uh, of death of his family, but also as he trips and falls. Um, he would have been the heir to Saul's house. But in many ways now, that identity has to be hidden because if he's found out, any one of Saul's enemies would probably come hunting for him. So here he is, uh, wounded internally with all that's happened in his life, wounded externally, wounded within and without. None of this is his fault, right? He's too young, he hasn't played any part in it, he's not responsible for it. But here he is, he's suddenly a refugee. He's in exile. There's been this terrible accident, this permanent disability, and really the loss of his future. And you can imagine with me what sort of life he would have had. Here he is, he's, he's displaced, he's also crippled. It would be easy, I think, to blame the Philistines for what happened. Maybe he blames God for what happened. Maybe he blames David for what happened. Who knows? 
but his world would have been very uncaring and ungenerous and unkind. He would have known little of love. His family's removed, taken from him. All he, all he knows is this nurse uh, and, and his broken ankles. And it's this, this boy who grows up and becomes an adult. And years later, we find him here in this passage that Charles read for us. So you can imagine Mephibosheth. I'm guessing he sat down a lot of the time. Maybe he had a cane or a walking stick or something. It seems he can get around a bit, but not well. And suddenly he finds himself before strangers who summon him now to King David's court. Friends, this would have been a moment of terror. Sheer terror. Right? He'd been found. He'd been found out. David had suffered so much under Saul. For all he knows, David's hunting the countryside for any one of Saul's descendants. He just wants to wipe them out. He doesn't know any better. But he can't do anything. He can't run away. And so he, he has no other options, and he, he can't keep, he, he has no other prospect either. And so he rides with the strangers back to Jerusalem. And imagine what that ride would have been like. Here he is, thinking through what this encounter with the king is going to be like. Um, the kings in his life would not have been very good examples, right? His grandpa, King Saul, by the end of his life, was a raving madman. He was bloodthirsty. Uh, he was not a nice guy. And his own uncle, who, who kind of sets himself up as a false king around, around this, at some point in this story, we'll get into that, his name's Ishbosheth. he wasn't much better than Saul. And so the kings in Mephibosheth's life uh, have not been kind people. These have been difficult people. Uh, these have been uh, dangerous people. So Mephibosheth, he's on, the, he's on the way to Jerusalem expecting the worst, right? This is terrible. Kings are brutal in his mind. Kings are brutal. And that's what happens when we come to this passage here in 2 Samuel 9. That's what's gone on in his life. And we read this verse. If you can look with me, please. Uh, chapter 6. Uh, sorry, verse 6, chapter 9. 2 Samuel. Mephibosheth, the son of David, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. The first time we meet Mephibosheth, he's fallen. Now he falls again. And he gets on the floor, and he bows before David. His ankles are throbbing in pain. He's afraid for his very life. And then we get this moment, this incredible moment. Instead of a death sentence, instead of insults or cursing or jealousy or self-righteousness from David, Mephibosheth hears his name. Yes. Yes. And we read in verse 7, David says, don't fear. The fear was radiating off of this man. And instead of all the things he would have imagined on the way there, uh, the the punishment perhaps, the death sentence, he hears his name. Mephibosheth has no idea that David's actually summoned here to love him. He's brought him to love him. And now here he is before the king and he's named. He's named personally and relationally and lovingly by David. Uh, Friends, to be named is to be known. Uh, It's the great gift of parents to get to name their children 
And by doing so, we, we bring them into a community, bring them with their own story and kind of place them and give them an identity and a home. But that's to be named. Your name is so important to who you are. Here he is uh, named and brought into this new community. Uh, he's known and he's loved. David speaks his name. David's a very different king than the sort of kings that Mephibosheth would have grown up with. And we read actually in 2 Samuel 8.15, I think it is, that David reigned with justice and equity. That's right. If you just look back at chapter 8, 8.15, David reigns with justice and equity. But there's another quality uh, that David lets mark his life. It's a quality that completes his sense of justice and his sense of equity. And that quality is love. David lets love be the mark of his kingship. And the word for love uh, that we often get in Hebrew is this word hesed. And our word love doesn't really do hesed justice. Because uh, we can say, I love God. I can also say, I love pizza. Uh, and the, it's not quite the same thing. I can say, I love my wife. And I can say, I love that movie, right? And the word love in both situations has a very different connotation, but we don't really have other words that we use. So love kind of gets used all over the place. Um, but hesed has this sense of, of steadfastness and faithfulness uh, and assurance. There's this great loyalty uh, and, a, and a kindness and a, sort of a covenantal hope that comes in hesed. And hesed is the word uh, that the Hebrew writers use to describe God's love for Israel and for humankind. Uh, God's love for you is this deep covenantal love, this loyal love, this faithful love. And friends, this is the love that we all long for, this sort of love. And it turns out actually it's, it's love that we're also capable of. Um, but as Eugene Peterson puts it, as I was researching this passage, he says it very well, we never seem very good at this. We never really seem to get it. This is a, this is a love, the love of God is a love without um, reference to shifting circumstances. It's not a love that changes based on hormones or personal convenience or emotional state. It's a steadfast, trustworthy love. Yes. This is the love that we read in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world. It is this sort of love. And friends, it's the love that we, we choose and we aspire to and we hope to foster every time in our marriage vows when we say uh, in sickness and in health, this is a hesed sort of love. It's this love that David wants to show to Jonathan's son. Out of this faithfulness that David wants to live out uh, to his friend Jonathan, where he said, uh, I'm gonna, I want to look out for and love your family. I'm going to be there for them. That's why, this, that's why this chapter starts with, is there anyone else? Is there anyone left in his house, in Saul's house, that I can then show my love to? And it's this love that David shows to Mephibosheth, and it changes everything for Mephibosheth, right? This is a, it's another sort of crucial moment in David's story. David, he's, a, he's established now, he's the king, he's a leader, he's a strategist, he's arrived finally at this long-awaited kingship, right? This kingship that he was anointed for years and years and years ago, he finally gets there. But now he has to choose how he's going to lead, how he's going to live. Is he, going to, is he going to live and lead through power or aggression or domination? I mean, that's how the other kings do it, right? All the other kings in the ancient Near East would have acted like the gods they served, 
which are essentially sort of bloodthirsty, out for themselves, vengeful. David has to make the choice, and he's choosing here in this moment, to let the character of God define who he is as a leader. So he lets God's love be the defining characteristic of how he leads. It's an incredible moment. And David chooses to live out his love by bringing in Mephibosheth. This is not a friend. This is not loving a friend. I mean, Mephibosheth is the last descendant we have, other than Micah, his own son, of Saul's enemy, of David's enemy, of Saul. This is loving your enemy. This is not like, here's this guy I kind of like. I'll bring him in and adopt him. This is like getting the son of the guy that tried to kill you, right? And adopting him. This is a love that's not just in words, but in action. David turns over to him all the land that was Saul's. This is verse 9 and 10. He turns it all over to Mephibosheth, all the lands of his grandpa. I mean, what that means is he's effectively supplying him with an independent income, which is huge. And then he assigns Ziba, good old Ziba, he's kind of faithfully hanging around. Ziba, you manage it all. You've got servants and household. You guys take care of it and look after Mephibosheth and look after his family. Because I want to, because I love him. It's this great moment. It's hesed. It's this extravagant love, folks, that has this, this sort of substance and rootedness. It has a deepness to it. It has this generosity to it. Um, it's an extravagant love, right? But perhaps most of all, even more than the independent income, there's another way in which that love is so very clearly shown in action. And it's the fact that in verse 11 we read uh, that Mephibosheth ate at David's table. He's brought in and he's allowed to eat at the, king's, at the king's table. What's that mean? Well, who eats at your table? Who eats at your table? Your family. Your family. Your children. Right, your children. So David's essentially adopted him. Right? He's adopted him. Think about this, Mephibosheth. He's, he was displaced, exiled, forgotten, crippled, orphaned. Is now Mephibosheth who's found and home and known and healed and adopted. Yes. Thank you, Lord. And friends, this picture what happened here between David and Mephibosheth is the picture of Christ's very love for you. Yes, that's right. It's the love that he shows us at the cross. It's the love that destroys the power of sin and evil and invites us back into relationship with him. Not because we deserve it, not because we're capable, but because of his extravagant chesed love for you. That he brings you who are crippled and broken, uh, Orphaned, and brings you to himself. Yes. And Mephibosheth, he would have been reminded of this love every time he sat at David's table. And what a turn of events for him, right? That love had completely transformed his life. But it's more than just a reminder. Eating at that table was a, it was a real living participation in the love that he'd been shown. He got to be part of it. Uh, David's love actually satisfies his, his physical hunger. It's a love he can join in. It's a, it's a love that fills his stomach, right? It's a love that he gets to eat and drink and realize how much he's been loved. And here he is at David's table. Uh, friends, 
There's another table. There's another table that's greater than King David's table. And you have a seat here too. You've been invited here. Jesus made a place for you here. And yes, we, we do this as a, as a reminder and remembrance of Jesus' love, but it's also more than that. Yes. It is a living participation in the love that he shows us. Yes. This is what Paul says. It's mysterious, I don't know how it works, but as we eat and drink at this table, Christ is present here with us. Yes. He nourishes us with his very self. Yes. He promises to do this. And this is why coming to the table shouldn't be a rare thing. I think you actually need to do it more often than not. Um, just as we need the word every week, perhaps we need the reminder of Christ's love for us at the table. It's a love that we get to eat and drink and receive again and again every time we come, right? The body of Christ, the blood of Christ given for you, made in love for you. Uh, that's why I think we can't come too often. Friends, two reflections for us, one from David, one from Mephibosheth, from David. Love is always a choice. Love is always a choice. David chooses to make his life and his leadership all about love. And many of us are in positions of leadership, maybe in your home or in your workplace or in your school or whatever it might be. And whether you are, whether you're a leader and an employer or whether you are uh, a servant or an employee, wherever you find yourself, you get to make the choice about what sort of qualities or characteristics are found in your life. You get to choose what you live out. And you can choose, like Saul did, to live for himself, to live vengefully, to live aggressively, uh, to live with contempt to one another, or you can choose, like David, uh, to choose to live lovingly and generously uh, and for the other person, otherly, not self-centered. You get to make that choice. You get to make that choice every day in every sort of situation that comes your way. All of us do. You can choose whether to love or not. David does not have to go out of his way to talk with Hibbishan. It's completely extravagant. Friends, you get to make that choice also. Ask in the next situation where you are tempted whether to serve yourself or serve the other, how can I be loving this person, this child, this mother, this grandfather, this coworker, whatever it might be, but ask that question. For some of us, when it comes to life and work, uh, loving the family will mean going and getting a job. For some of us, loving the family will mean coming home more often from your job. But you get to choose how love is defined in your family, whether you live that or not. Also for all of us who are married, friends, love is a choice, not a feeling. We get to choose every day whether to say I do again. We get to choose whether to let God's love be reflected and lived out in our marriages and in our lives. And if you're not married or single, think of all your friendships, the family you have. You get to choose whether to love and let God's character be reflected in you or not. But you get to make that choice. David made that choice. Make your life about love. Think about what Jesus says in John 13. Love one another, right? Love one another in the same way I love you you love one another. And this is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. Yes. The mark of a disciple of Christ is a life of love. Yes. 
This is Christ's last commission to the church, is to go and make disciples. These are people who are known uh, in their love for one another and for a broken world. Friends, this is my heart for us as well, that we would be disciples who are making more disciples. This is only known as we take on the very love of Christ and seek to live it in our own lives, friends. This is discipleship. So the first reflection from David and his choice here, choose to live a life of love. Choose every day. Secondly, remember Mephibosheth. Here he is, broken, crippled, afraid. Picture him now. He's being carried to the table of the king, seated with David, made a son. Yes. Right? Given the best, given peace and joy, and given a future like he never had before. It was all ripped away from him. Here he is now with hope for his family and his own children. First, uh, first, show, first sign of love that he's had in a long time. And picture him there, friends, at the table. It's not just the Mephibosheth. It's you and me. Yes, thank you, Lord. That's right. You're seated at that table also. I'm seated there too. We who are broken and crippled and afraid and met by another king. And it's the king of love. And he's made a seat for you here at the table. And as as he picks you up to bring you in, uh, your own feet kind of broken yes. and wounded along the way. You look down and you realize his feet are wounded too. That's right. That's right. Yes, they are. He bears still the scars of love that make a way for you. Thank you, Lord. He brings you in. He knows you by name. He speaks it now. Come to the table. Come to the table. There's this song by uh, the band Leland uh, that was, a, was an important song uh, for me when I was in college. And it goes like this. It says, I've been carried to the table. I'm seated where I don't belong. I was carried to the table and swept away by his love. And I don't see my brokenness anymore. When I'm seated at the table of the Lord, I was carried to the table, the table of the Lord. Friends, Christ is that faithful king and lover who invites you crippled and broken and lost in sin and brings you now to his table. He invites you in, not because you deserve this, because of his great love for you. The only part you have to play, friends, is to choose to open yourself to that. Say, Lord, I receive it. Scoop me up and bring me in. I need to be at that table. I need to be there. Lord, would you bring me? He's faithful to do it. Let him carry you to the table, friends. And here at this table, you know what? You look around, you find you've got brothers and sisters that are with you. All broken, but all being made whole by the life and love of God. It's a beautiful thing. Friends, if you tarry till you're better, as the old song says, you'll never come at all. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come. Come now, wounded, crippled, orphaned, and become healed and whole and adopted. Amen.